EAG. They're leading the game. What game? The M&A game. The data conversion game. The last 18 years, EAG has helped dozens of EMP companies expedite acquisition onboarding, including the conversion of systems and data, allowing operators to hit even the most aggressive of TSAs. A 90-day TSA? Sure. 60-day TSA? No problem. 30-day TSA? Crazy, aggressive, but EAG can help. EAG has a refined, proven process to help operators integrate acquisitions and is the undisputed heavyweight champ for your M&A integration needs. For more information, visit EAGServices.com. That's right, EAGServices.com. Welcome, everybody, to Chuck Yates Needs a Job, the podcast. All right, guys, you got to help me. I was given so much grief when I was in Oklahoma giving a speech because I supposedly start every podcast with, it's really cool that this is my guest. And my my <laughs> assistant, Claire, made a bingo card of all the things I say over and over again on the podcast, and she secretly gave it to the audience while I'm giving this speech, so she's it's marking good. it off. So, so, Jeremy, kick us off. What is this? What is what are we doing here? Yeah, exactly. I can't. Yeah, say I, I was cool hoping you would have, you would tell me that. Yeah. Okay, <laughs> Jeremy, you're fired. Ryan, who are y'all? Why are y'all here? Live from Richmond, Texas. You get Montrose Lane. Uh, by, no. by the way, Richmond, Texas is just a shade worse than I thought it would be. Oh, that's so brutal. This is turning into the podcasting hub of the uh, of the world here. No, it's certainly the, 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 the it's certainly the greatest place in the world to get Tex Mex and I stand by that. That that and Bale's bondsman's <laughs> exactly. the the uh, the studio is on uh, what do you call those concrete slabs. So a concrete slab, baby. Yeah. <laughs> no, this is this is actually great, folks. Uh, I've got the Montrose Lane guys in. Jeremy, Ryan, and Mark. So, guys, tell me how y'all met. We, it was an accident. Go <laughs> ahead. <Okay>. Um, <laughs> that, that, that sounds like prom night. Only all regret. Regret. No. Okay. <laughs> so we, we actually all met via my sister, who is married to Ryan, uh, and used to work with Mark. Yeah. Uh, at at Manhattan Institute, and at the time. Uh, Ryan was at Basin, I was at TPH, and, and Mark was at Manhattan Institute and had written a paper called Shale 2.0, which was about digital technology uh, making oil and gas a lot better. And at the time, Ryan and I had been sharing notes on on how that exact thing might be pretty interesting in, in energy. And uh, Mark came out and spoke to TPH, where I was at the time, and spoke to Basin, where Ryan was at the time, and we all started talking about essentially that idea and kept sharing notes on it and eventually, uh, you know, decided to branch out and start what is now Montrose Lane. Yeah. And the, and the, the additional details would be batted around a lot you know, Oh, do you think you should do this? Oh, we shouldn't do it. No, we should do it. What do you think? Kind of depending on the day. <laughs> and then one margarita fueled evening then led to, <laughs> hell yeah, we should do this <laughs> next morning. Just wait one? a second. What did, what did we agree? Uh, no. And then, uh, I, we may have shared this at one point, but uh, 
when I was days before I was going to quit my job in New York or the, the evening before I was going to quit my job in New York, <laughs> uh, I called Jeremy and where were you again? I was at, I was at a hotel I can no longer afford, but someone else was paying for it at the time. <laughs> I, was, I was on a business trip in Hong Kong at the Peninsula Hotel, which is a lovely hotel. And yeah. in Hong Kong, when it's morning here and you're on your way to work in Hong Kong, it's you know close to middle of the night and you're on your way to bed. Yeah, and, and Jeremy, I think, had a, had a big night uh, in, <laughs> in, in uh, Hong Kong. And, and uh, I call him like, all right, man, I'm about to go do this. Are, are, are you sure? And he's like, of course, sounds great. <laughs> so thankfully, he had the, uh, uh, the liquid courage on his side and then uh, ended up doing it. So, Mark, you seem to be the adult in the group. Do you condone such drinking and, and you know, I, I was guilty of egging them on. So, nice. <laughs> just, uh, you know, it's kind of it's interesting because I, I'd uh, been in a venture fund before and doing a lot of tech uh, uh, investing, both in hardware and software, and and uh, figured out how to make all the mistakes that you can make by having made most of the mistakes you can make in, in venture investing. But... When we talked about this idea, because it was it's an obvious idea in hindsight, everybody is, agrees now that oil fields and, and industrial sector in general has to digitalize, getting more digitalized, more software. But it's not so obvious that you can start a fund to find investment opportunities. And it's not so easy to do that. So I was guilty as the guy that when we were talking about it, oh, you could do this. I mean, you guys just quit. Just do it. <laughs> Money's easy to raise. Not a problem. <laughs> you go, girls. I'll wave. Sounds like a man with an override. It was interesting because uh, they both came from um, complementary backgrounds. I mean, Ryan was an operating company. You know, Jeremy didn't do anything useful. He worked in an, invest- <laughs> an investment company. No, he worked... For, uh, for that, man, that's man. one of my favorite quotes of all time. Is, Investment banking is just the art of stating the obvious is, with an air of discovery. Is that, so. Exactly. So, but but really being involved in the industry on the finance side, you it's sobering because it's a cyclical industry. Oil, all the, everybody in the oil business knows it's cyclical. Finance is critical in any business, but really it is in oil. So it's it's a it's a pretty sobering experience. And I've done enough venture to know. You know, frankly, to be honest, but you know, in, in Canada, it's, it's hard, right? It's not easy to do uh, investing in earlier stage companies. It's harder in some senses. Big returns, big opportunity, but it's, it's it's harder than. And I'm being simplistic, just looking at spreadsheets and saying, well, this is, this looks like a well managed business. Their finances look good. I like the IRR because you know what their their debt is. You know what their returns are. You don't know those things in early stage companies. Yeah, kind of cool. Yeah, no, uh, I've heard it referred to as you don't want to be too smart or you'll get scared um, investing in that. What was the earlier VC fund that you worked with, if you can name names? It was called Digital Power Capital. We did uh, a couple dozen deals and everything from silicon carbide and you know millimeter wave radar that uh, is part of 5G and navigating cars. It did uh, software to control... um, Data centers, power systems, I mean, pretty omnivorous, but all tech-related stuff, but hardware and software. Because that's when you and I met. I don't know if you remember this, but we met in the late 90s because I was at Stevens and oil was at 12. So I stopped being an oil and gas guy. (laughs) (laughs) And what I figured out was the internet was taken off. Stevens had a really good internet analyst. And I figured if there was some place the internet 
touched a hydrocarbon, yep. I kind of could go in and hold my own on a discussion. And ultimately what it morphed into the theory was, is we just needed to upgrade the grid. You know, we couldn't have three nines of reliability. We need to have five or seven or however many nines you yep. needed. And we kind of built a business out of that. We invested in some flywheel, a flywheel battery company we invested in. Active you know, power, probably. Oh, it was active power, yeah. Yeah, I was, uh, I, knew, I knew the active power guys, yeah. So I, I remember that because Peter and I, my partner uh, in crime, writing the book, The Bottomless Well, back shortly after that, he, he and I were running a tech investment newsletter at that time called The Digital Power Report. And so we actually covered Active Power, we covered Cree, we covered Rockwell Automation when it spun out, we covered... We had Proton uh, yeah. Energy that yep. wound up going public. We yep. made some money on that. Yep. And and the best deal I thought we invested in was Silicon Energy, the energy yep. management software company. Yep. And we got our money back and it was a home run. I <laughs> mean, because it was a great tech. And this, this is leading to, to what I want to ask you guys about. Silicon Energy was this amazing energy management software company. It sat on top of the enterprise. It talked to accounting. It talked to the control systems. You could import weather data. You could do everything. So pick Neiman Marcus, for instance. Neiman Marcus could see that, you know, it's going to be hotter than normal in, in Houston, so they turn up the AC. It's going to be cooler, turn it down. It allowed them to really manage their energy costs just phenomenal. I mean, we sold this to Walmart, and Walmart, in, in terms of one of the software systems, Walmart's sophisticated as they come. Did you know that every light in every store and every Walmart in the world is turned on and off in Bentonville? Sure. I mean, yeah, they have the control that, yeah. system to do it. They set all the ACs. <laughs> yep. Even Walmart didn't have enough talent and sophistication to use silicon energy software for all it could do. And so what happened is this software kind of languished. People would buy it, it'd be great, mm -hmm. and then they get rid of it. So it was an important lesson to me that you could solve all the world's problems with the greatest technology in the world. If people don't use it, if it doesn't get really implemented, it doesn't lead to more sales and the like. Does that sound familiar in oil and gas? Yeah, look, I think that sounds familiar in technology broadly, right? You're, you're changing the way people do things, and that's the very nature of technology. I think what we found, um, you know, sometimes in, with harder lessons than, than other times, but uh, it, it just goes back to that old adage that I'm sure you guys talked about all the time at Kane of I'd rather invest in a, you know, A-plus team with a C product than I would in a C team with an A-plus product. Um, because, you know, even if you have the best product in the world, it doesn't, it doesn't much matter. Uh, similar if you have the best rock in the world, it doesn't much matter if you can't prove that it works well and you can't convince the customer that it works well and you can't convince the customer that this is good for them. Um, and so what I think what we found, uh, again, through through some, you know, trial and error and, and uh, you know, it's certainly not a straight line, but I think what we found is that the even with the best technology, you have to ha be able to tell a very good story um, and you have to simplify it for the customer and you have to make it clear why that exact buyer, their life is going to be better. Not only is the company going to be better, um, but their personal life is going to be better. Um, and I think that's where a, a lot of that delta is when people say, oh, man, you know, my product's awesome, but no one's buying it. Um, well, well, I'm going to put you on the spot then because, you know, Dan Pickering and I talked about this in this in the same room. 
can energy technology actually recruit those people? I mean, if you just talk about, you know, the sexy fun place to be, it's Google, Microsoft, Facebook, and then all of the branches of the startup, you know, startups that spin off that. What's it like in energy technology world trying to recruit CEOs and that kind of talent? Are we able to do it? Are we, is it tough? Yeah, I mean, I, I'll field it again. I, I think on the margin over the last few years, energy has been a tough place to be because it's so battered. Um, it's so battered in politics, uh, in media, um, and, you know, especially oil and gas. But, you know, I, I think you could say the same for utilities and, and, and a lot of the different segments of the energy industry. Um so there is some education that goes into it, right? Uh, that, hey, if I'm working on something that, that helps make fracking more efficient, am I ruining the world? Uh, because that's, that's what you might believe if you, you know, read CNN or, or whatever. Um, so I think it is a, a higher hurdle to get somebody to work in an industry that is so beaten up uh, in media and in politics and so forth. But look, they're also super complex problems. And what we found is that there are a lot of people out there, especially as you think about software engineers, data scientists, et cetera, um, who I think is who you're generally talking about. I think you're talking probably less about the, the commercial sales side. And as we think about software engineers and data scientists and, and, and the types that our companies hire, look, they, a lot of what drives them is solving hard problems and, and dealing with interesting data sets. And, and trying to figure out things that people haven't been able to figure out in the past. And when you're combining data science and software with, you know, ultimately a, a very complex industry uh, where we're trying to figure out how do we make things better that are happening two miles below the earth that we never see, never will see, and will we'll never fully understand, that's a really interesting thing to work on. Um, and so, you know, I think to some degree you're right that not everyone wants to work in this industry. Um, but we haven't found that it's any more difficult to recruit good people here than it is at a, you know, startup that is a, a better, you know, mousetrap in, in, uh, San Francisco you, you compete with the same people, um, and you just have different points of competition. Yeah. I mean, I, I would say there's, there's really no shortage of, of high quality talent out there. Um, and, and as we think about talent, it's kind of two domain experts. It's a technology domain expert. And it's a domain expert that has energy background, uh, specifically in whatever problem that per person may or, uh, is, is targeting to solve. Uh, and I would say what we've seen over the past 18 months in particular is, look, negative commodity prices is a real catalyst to shed headcount. Where do those people go? They say, hey, this is an opportunity to start a company. This is an opportunity to, to fix a problem set that I identified when, when I was at a larger organization. Um, that's a really important skill set. Uh, when we think about the sell cycle and the sales approach for our companies, none of our companies sell AI. None of our companies sell machine learning. None of our companies sell blockchain. They all use those technologies to enable you know, solving a problem, but they sell solutions. They sell, let us help you optimize your production. Let us help you optimize your drilling and completion. Let us optimize whatever that might be. And we're going to use this in the back end. But I think that's, a, that's an important differentiation versus just selling technology. Well, the, the, the question as you phrased it also has implicit in it an idea 
that was true 10 years ago, that if you wanted to use these tools, any kind of software tool to the digital domain, you had to be very sophisticated in that software digital domain. That's not true anymore. As you know, the stuff gets easier all the time. In fact, the, uh, the interesting trend that's going on in Silicon Valley is that coders are creating code that's putting coders out of work. I mean, the, the whole, a whole hot issue here now is how you create an AI coding tool that people who are not coders can use natural language to write code. Basically talk to the computer, have it create the code you need. It runs in the cloud. The cloud is all automated. So the more uh, user-friendly software itself gets, the more powerful it gets for people who are domain smart. So that's the way of, you don't have to recruit somebody from Silicon Valley to work in the digital oil fields. What you really want, to Ryan's point, if people are smart about oil fields, and to Jeremy's point, people are good managers or they know the, they know the business. That's become more and more true in the last half dozen years. That's why I, when I wrote Shell 2.0, that, that was essentially the, the message is that the software and the sensors are finally good enough to be useful. And your experience with silicon energy is typical of a lot of things I saw at that time as well. You could make something, but the people who made it really didn't understand their customer. They were really good at their software. They could make something very powerful, but they didn't have that much customer uh, experience. They saw, often they had nobody in the company that had ever worked in the business that they were selling to. I mean, should be a red flag, you'd think. <laughs> but I mean, if you... Party foul. <laughs> yeah, but apparently it wasn't because a lot of people invested in those kind of businesses. So certainly it, in our space, if you were... It's, when you state it, it's obvious. So you go to a company, you do due diligence, and you find out they're, they're making a new machine learning algorithm that really helps some part of the oil and gas business. And is there anybody in the company that's ever worked in the oil and gas business? And you, I guess it would say... It's surprising how often you find out there isn't a single human being in these companies that's ever worked in oil and gas. How do you sell a business you don't know anything about, that you haven't lived and breathed? That's less true now, but that was, that was very common. On the energy management, the utility side, it was very common back in the days you and I were looking at the software people who were going to fix the grid. Uh, they'd never sold to, worked in, or been near a utility in their life. They're just sure that the utilities were dopes and that they could be you know, saved from their own stupidity. You get a little bit of that going on in Silicon Valley once in a while, and uh, yeah, it's it's not a, not an uncommon phenomenon. I think too, it's not necessarily the first technology or the best technology that wins. It's it's the technology that the customer likes the most that wins, um, and those aren't necessarily the same. You know, like Google wasn't the first search engine. It, you know, they may have had some some novel algorithms around how they're searching for things, but really, people probably just liked it because it was a simple. Uh, simple layout and and it got them their answer quicker than than another thing um it wasn't that they were doing anything that was materially different than an alta vista or ask.com or whatever and then you know similar thing for facebook right i mean there, facebook wasn't the first social media website there were there were several and, and myspace was huge but facebook you know they made it exclusive they made it feel like you were part of a club and, and they tapped into some human thing in their customers that, that their customers really enjoyed um, and so I, I think that's an important distinction is ultimately, yeah, they're software companies, but they're still companies. We're selling widgets. And if we're selling widgets, we got to have the widget that our customer wants. And we have to know how to share with our customer what they want about it and, and make their life better. 
So my theory on this, because when you when I met you guys, y'all stalked me on LinkedIn. I always like to say that they stalked me on LinkedIn. You know, we went and uh, and um, we looked at your profile every day. Really? <laughs> yeah, I guess for at least yeah. at least five years. Now, now before I'm we built up the courage to reach out. <laughs> now, now I'm totally creeped out. Um, no, but but when we went and I've. I've kind of bashed it was those pictures too. Yeah, exactly. That, that was what yeah. got them watching. Them. Exactly. Those pictures. Exactly. The uh, <laughs> no, and I've kind of bastardized down the story just to make it simpler and quicker to 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 say because I don't think I actually brought the pitch book I wrote at Stevens, but I've shown it to you guys subsequently. Sure. But you know, twenty two years ago, in the process of trying to figure out hydrocarbon and internet, what's the thesis I have that I can make some money on? I wrote a pitch book on energy technology, had the whole supply chain there, all the inefficiencies in it. This is when, if you wanted to trade natural gas, you actually picked up a phone and called a broker, and the broker screamed into the pit, ah, this is the price, you know, before you could do it online and and the like. And, you know, so a lot of the, the things you guys were talking about at that first meeting we had when we were sitting around, it was in my pitch book 22 years ago, and it seemed pretty similar to your thesis behind the the forming of Montrose Lane. And my take, and I'll get y'all to agree, disagree, critique, take it wherever you want. My theory on oil and gas is you just had so much of the ability to get rich overnight, almost through no fault of your own. The, the Saudis could do an embargo, price of oil would triple, boom, you're rich. We had... You know, you could always stumble across a big, huge well, and boom, you're rich. We had 3D seismic in the late 90s. You could image things for the first time. Boom, you could just get rich. You really had almost kind of this lottery ticket. So there was absolutely no incentive to run an efficient business because nickels and dimes didn't matter because the dollar bills showed up or they didn't. And so that's why I think the world of oil and gas was slow to adopt technology just because why digitize all my land files when it really didn't matter to my business, whether I'm rich or not. But now that's changed. I always hate to say things are different because they never are, you know, cycles are cycles, but it feels different this time. Any truth to that or? Yeah, I, I, I totally agree. I think it's also important to define technology. Uh, we're investing in softwares that help to automate people, processes, and procedures. Um, so that's that's you know where that's our lane. As I think about where the industry was in the past, I mean, look, the oil and gas industry has been a leader in technology. The fact that you can you know capture seismic and interpolate seismic, drill multi-million dollar wells based on that, uh, you know, miles below the surface of the earth, like we are an incredibly advanced industry from a technology and, perspective. And I'm cutting you off and I'm sorry to do that. But the way I frame that in the thesis I just laid out is if technology gave me another lottery ticket, I spent the money and got really, really freaking good at it. hundred percent. If it didn't give me another lottery ticket, it saved me a nickel or a dime. I didn't do it. Yeah. Good point. So, you know, the industry, you're right, was just focused on the lottery ticket side. Uh, was focused on flipping. And, well, what changed? Well, it's a focus on efficiency. And it's this manufacturing mindset. You're seeing it in the public markets today. There's a trend to consolidation to become the low-cost producer. Uh, how do you do more with less? And that is the crux of our thesis of enabling low-cost production of, of energy. And to be clear, we've talked a lot about oil and gas. 
we are you know, big fans of oil and gas. I think it's going to be around for a long time. think it needs to be efficient. think it needs to be environmentally focused uh, and transparent. We think our companies helped enable that. We're also open to investing in other forms of energy as well and creating a low-cost, transparent production of whatever energy source it might be. But agree as it relates to now is the time for software to enable low-cost production. The, the, the lottery ticket mentalities, this, this is my personal guess, won't go away. This, there's a, it's a big enough industry. <laughs> but that, I, a, a, a bet I'll take uh, anytime, anywhere is when oil hits $100 a barrel, does Mardi Gras come back? Everybody's talking, being being efficient and disciplined. I take the bet there's a big swath of the oil patch that uh, parties again and, and goes for the lottery tickets. But that doesn't change the fact underlying it. There's a lot more, like Ryan says, of the manufacturing mentality in a huge portion of the business looking for, looking for the nickels and dimes to operate efficiently. But let me tell you one thing that is different. So you could do 3D seismic because you could, if you're BP or Exxon, because you could afford a supercomputer, literally. They bought some of the only commercial supercomputers that were built for private businesses 20 years ago. There was a government in BP and the National Labs. Nobody else bought supercomputers except oil companies to run 3D seismic to win the lottery ticket in deep water. But if you talk to an oil and gas tech company today or anybody in industrial tech, any part of, any part of the energy ecosystem, every one of them will basically say the same thing when you unbundle their business. They're using sensor information through, get coming to them that they could not have got in 1999. There was nothing given that information, whether it's their cell phone giving them a location of somebody or a sensor in a well or in a field. And they're all using something in the cloud. They're all using AWS or Azure or Google Cloud. Every, everyone has this incredible access for low cost to compute horsepower that's unprecedented in the cloud. That lets you do things now it was impossible in 1999 for chump change. That's a big difference. That's a, that's a, a change of, of profound significance that is just beginning to be felt. It, wasn't, it didn't exist in 1999. The cloud is, is we're sort of living it today, whether it's disintermediating uh, hotels with you know, Airbnb or taxis with Uber, that's a cloud function. That didn't exist before 2008, 2009. It didn't exist as a cheap tool until about 2010 or 12. So it's a really new infrastructure that exists that businesses are now taking advantage of. It's a big deal, it's just beginning. It's just beginning to roll through systems of all kinds. You know, I had a engineering partner at Kane Anderson that used to say, oil field mysteries, bullshit. There's not a mystery. You just don't have the ability to gather the information right. to solve the problem. Because, yeah. um, I mean, you forget, I mean, with 3D seismic back in the late 90s, I mean, you would see these structures for the first time and all that. I mean, I think they had about a 50-foot gap mm -hmm. in actually, and sure. it was interpolated between. Right. So if you think of a 300-foot you know, contour that you're going after, I mean, you had right. basically six points of data. And right. so to your to your point, you just couldn't you couldn't get better sound waves in the in the 3D seismic to be able to to image it as precise as you want. So well, it was just imaging 3D data, as you know, I mean, as Ryan pointed out, we, we look at people processes, you know, you look at you if you want to know where somebody is or a piece of equipment is. It's easy to do now. Everybody knows that, right? It's you anonymized data of human beings because everybody carries a smartphone. 
But that same kind of GPS location, same kind of accelerometer mapping of movements is now available for chump change in any physical thing. That was, that was impossible just 10 years ago. So those tools exist. They didn't exist then. And the ability to do something with that much data, you couldn't have done. You couldn't have afforded that if you were a small startup company. They can all afford it now. So that really, uh, there is, the roadmaps were known in 1999. They were known in 1950. Right? People, people understood, this is what I'd like to do. The technology didn't exist. Now it does. Which is part of the reason, I think, when you know, Jeremy pointed out, you sort of look at the people that know what to do with this toolkit. That's, that's, that's where the magic happens because essentially everybody has access to the same toolkit now. There's, there's not that much magic. Yes, there is, there's too enough new stuff to invent, but in terms of things you're gonna use every day in an industrial environment, the stuff exists already and almost anybody can buy it. Well, let's go all out future. What happens over the next five years? I'll kind of ping each one of y'all to, to give one or two predictions illustrations of what you think but where's this all going now that we've got this great supercomputing power because at the end of the day i've heard the stat and mark you can correct me where i'm wrong but i've heard we use less than one percent of the information we gather in the oil field right. something like that yeah. sure it's that's true in life probably probably it's you're true right of us individually yeah that's true <laughs> For my part, it's probably a is tenth it, of a percent. If, if it comes into the mind and you don't remember it, did you technically gather it? <laughs> All right. Who's drawing the short? Jeremy, you drew the short straw. Tell me what the next five years look like. What are we going to see if we're sitting around talking about oil and gas companies, energy companies? What are we going to see? Yeah. So I think from my standpoint, five years from now, I think we're going to be surprised at that we're using more oil and gas than we've ever used in the past. Um, and I, I say surprise, probably a lot of your podcast listeners won't be surprised, but I think from a just general uh, United States public standpoint, that would probably be surprising. Um, I, I think that... So something like 110 million barrels a day, something like that? Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I mean, exact, you don't have to yeah, put say, a precise number on say it. Say the but, prior peak was 100 million barrels a day, plus right. or minus. Um, and, you know, that that's growing at... I don't know, call it two to three percent per year. And, and so we're five years out. So, yeah, it's probably somewhere around that, um, you know, maybe even a little higher than that, because, look, we we've had a lost year in 2020. But, you know, it's not like humanity was set back a full year. We're still we're, we're going to catch up pretty quickly. Um, there's a backlog of things we have to do. Uh, and so maybe it's a little higher than 110 million barrels a day. I think natural gas will be even higher than that. Uh, so. I think we're going to be using more oil and gas than, than at any time in the past. I think we'll also be using more solar and wind than at any time in the past. But ultimately, humanity needs a lot more energy. And, you know, I, I think we, as a, as a people, we, we focus too much on the recent past. Um, and we focus too much on our immediate surroundings. And I think what I get excited about is you have 80% of the world's population lives in abject poverty relative to the United States conditions and uses extremely little energy. And what that means is as those people get a little bit richer, that it's pretty much a linear correlation that you get richer, you use more energy. And so as 80% of the world's population, not to mention the population is going to keep growing, but as, as that 80% gets a little bit richer every year, they're going to use a little bit more energy per person every year. And as you multiply that a little bit more energy per person by a lot of people, that's a lot of energy. And so that's what I get excited about in what we're doing is that if we can make 
that huge consumption of energy, you know, uh, Mark likes to say the, you know, the, 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 that vacuum sucking sound of energy. <laughs> um, if we can make that a little bit more efficient, then, then we, that's a market we get. I think you like to say that. <laughs> well, um, and I'm going to come back to you because you're going to have to give me just a wild forecast, but we'll go around the, the room and hear about the next five years before we come, come back to you. I am going to triple down on this. People mock me on Twitter because to that point, I always say poor people want to have their MTV too. You know, that's why we run the free war and all that. I won the uh, cold war and, and the like. And of course people are on Twitter. Dude, nobody watches MTV anymore. <laughs> so we're tripling <laughs> down. Everybody wants their MTV. Ryan, what do you think? What are the next five years look, look like? I mean, I, I share a very similar view to Jeremy. I, I think, you know, at the highest level, Population will grow, energy demand, consumption will grow, and we need increased energy output from all sources. Uh, and I think oil and gas is going to be a big piece of that. I think other forms of energy are going to grow at a arguably more rapid pace, but still, you know, be a smaller piece of, of, of the you know, as they are now of the overall pie. But the pie is simply going to get bigger, and we need to find ways to to fill that. Um, so yeah, we're we're bullish on all forms of energy. I think coal's going to grow too. I think people will be using more coal five years from now than they are today. Well, yeah, you you ask what what are these forms of energy displacing? They're displacing burning of wood or dung or other you know things that you would prefer not to burn because there's significant pollutants associated with it. Yeah. Or a horse. Yeah. Uh, or you know you're replacing walking with your legs with getting a motorbike, and you're replacing your motorbike with a you know Ford Fiesta and your Ford Fiesta with a Camry, and then ultimately you're driving a, a suburban. You know, um, there's a long way to go for for a huge majority of the world's population. So I'll double down and take it one level higher. So All the, right. The, the, the thesis that the anti-growth uh, prognosticators have put out uh, is that there's a new normal, because you hear both from Jeremy and Ryan, that underpinning this is the expectation there'll be growth. When there's growth, there's growth, economic growth in the world, there's going to be more people. That's a given for a long time. There's a peak to population growth. Uh, looks like coming in about a century, but century's a long time. So there's more people and more wealth. If you don't think there's going to be more wealth, you can get to a thesis that says, well, you know, maybe we won't consume that much more stuff because nobody can afford it. If you can't afford to buy a car because you don't have a car, you're not going to buy a car. So the, uh, the, the, the animating question behind where does energy demand go is not just what are the sources, because Jeremy and Ryan are right. I've said this for years. You know, it's the line that Obama used back when he ran for president the first time, the all of the above line. That's what the world, in fact, does. It's not, it's not a particularly clever line. It's an observation of reality. The world uses all of the above because it needs all of the damn above, because there just isn't enough of everything. But if you don't think there's real growth coming, if you're what I call the, in the class of the new normalists, the new normalists think the new normal is low growth for the Western world and, and derivatively for the rest of the emerging markets, the so-called frontier markets. So then you have to ask yourself, okay, they actually have a point, right? Growth has been relatively slow by historic standards. If you look at the last century or two of industrialization, the last two or three decades have been pretty anemic by those standards. And that's the quote, new normal. There are books, as you know, written about this thesis. The Great Stagnation, which Tyler Cohen, the economist, wrote a few years ago, which he's a little bit recanting on, I have to say, to his credit lately. The, the, the underlying question then is, 
is growth going to keep going at a new normal slow or does it kick up? Because something has to kick it up. But kicking it up comes from productivity. So I'll just say, I, I believe that we are at the beginning of a boom in terms of productivity growth. That if you look at things as cycles, there's always cycles, we've been in a down cycle on productivity growth. Productivity growth comes from technology. Always. That's where it comes from. You want to take out labor, land, and materials per unit of product or service. If you do that, the product or service gets cheaper. People buy more, but everybody gets wealthier. It's It's been what's been going on in, for the last uh, 250 years in the world. This is why the world is wealthier now than it was any time when there's less abject poverty. What's going to kick it off? I'll come back to my cloud and new technologies and sensors, new classes of materials. The, the constellation of new technologies that are just now commercializing is unprecedented in a century. We're actually in a period of time that looks a lot like the 1920s. So if you sort of unbundle your history and look at what happened in 1920 and 1921, it turns out it's very culturally similar to where we are today, by the way. Uh, 1920 was a really grotesque year for the United States. It was the uh, 1918 plan- pandemic had, had still... First, the first part of 1920 was still suffering from the 1918 flu. Uh, we come out of a world war. The Bolshevik Revolution was a couple years earlier. Uh, I mean, there were race riots in, in the country, martial law implemented in cities across the country because of race riots. I mean, America was a mess in 1920. We had an election where the president ran on a campaign in 1920 called a return to normal, <laughs> the new normal. <laughs> it was amazing, Harding, and he won. Uh, but the big thing that was going on in 1920 was that most people didn't have a car. Most people didn't have electricity. Most people didn't have plumbing. Most people didn't have electrical lighting. Most people didn't have anything that was made out of think, plastic or polymers. Most people didn't have pharmaceuticals. All those things were maturing contemporaneously in 1920s. We have the same class of revolution going on now in the 2020s. In fact, my new book, which is, uh, you, we get to unveil it on your podcast. I mean, it's just, All right. uh, it comes out on October 5th. And uh, it has an unsubtle, t- unsubtle title, uh, The Cloud Revolution, which is the main title. Then as books have to have long subtitles that are basically the narrative of the book. The subtitle right. is how, new techno- how the convergence of new technologies unleashes the next economic boom in a roaring 2020s. If I'm right, I know I'm right, so <laughs> if I'm right, <laughs> that kind of economic boom will really drag energy demand much faster than all the pundits and forecasters are saying. And then, yeah, you're going to have uh, lots more oil and gas, and you're going to have a Jeremy's giant sucking sound for more wind and solar and batteries and, and Teslas because you're going to need them all. You know, and we'll be able to afford all of them. It, you know, Teslas are, are, are never going to get as cheap as an internal combustion engine in our lifetime. I'll just go out on a limb and make so, that forecast. But we'll get richer and more people will buy them, which is great. So let me ask about that um, real quick. We've got cheap computing power. Is that economic growth in the engine, the United States, Europe, or is it Africa and lesser developed countries? Because at the end of the day, I can't imagine my life being any more complex. I can't even keep up with my social media right now. And so... So where, well, that's where just do, you, Chuck. I mean, come yeah, on. Yeah, I know. That's true. <laughs> Ryan, technically, he's a social media master. Technically, I am not a boomer. <laughs> I am three years. I'm three years younger. I'm Generation X. So, uh, but uh, no, where just in your book, what what's fueling the big drive? Well, three. The, so the, the big drive in the future, in, in simplest sort of technology spheres, is the same as 1920s. 
you have to have a you have to have a step function or a, what's called a phase change in information technologies. We have that. That's the cloud. The cloud is as different from the internet as the internet was different from telephony. It's a big change. Then you have to have a, a change in the class of machines available to do things. We have that again. I mean, the class of machines are always different kinds of things, but we have a different class of machines. Simplistically, an easy example is 3D printing, which is still still maturing, but a big deal. It sort of permits mass customization. And then the third class of things you have to have a change in are the materials. So pre-chemical area, before you could make polymers and pharmaceuticals, everything was made out of wood, leather, stone, you know, and, and crude metals. And then we've changed the material space that we could make things from. That's happening again. We have synthetic classes of materials that are astonishing. We, we, we make biocompatible things that we can uh, uh, implant, eat, and put into food that was impossible 10 years ago. So the three classes of, of, of technologies are changing contemporaneously. That's what makes the... And that's going to change the United States and Europe that it, much? It, it will change. The important thing is it'll do what it did last time. It's never symmetrical. Not everybody gets as rich as everybody else, but everybody got richer. So the, the adage that the rising tide lifts all boats is true. History has shown that to be the case. Africa gets richer. India gets richer. But the richer countries get richer too. They start from a higher base. You know, BCG, Boston Consulting Group, did a really interesting survey a couple of years ago at the eff effect of smartphones in emerging markets and frontier markets. You won't be surprised to find out that what it did for a lot of them wasn't so much the social media. It was like an economic lubricant for small businesses starting because they had access to information. They could exchange and trade and do things that were far faster and easier than they could ever have done before because you could distribute the network at a velocity that was impossible if it was a wired network. So the mapping of economic growth in emerging markets because of the advent of just the simple functions in a smartphone is already clear, and that's just the beginning. And all of it, of course, we're back to energy. So you get richer, what is the first thing you do? You buy an air conditioner, and then you buy a car, and then you buy a, bigger, you buy a house or a bigger house. Those things are massive consumers of energy. Yeah, now I've always said that if in a lesser developed country, if your dad gets the first car in the village and you get to take out the head cheerleader, you will do anything for the rest of your life to drive a car. I mean, there's, just, there's not going to be a, a question about that. So we're going to need a lot of energy. That slaps us right into the middle of energy transition. Um, and so just throwing some random questions out, but I'll make make you you guys answer them is you know are we polluting the environment with burning oil and gas if so how are we going to deal with that pollution you guys know what's going on with with energy transition greta all of that how are we going to navigate that in this world where everybody wants mtvs cars and uh cell phones yeah so I think energy transitions obviously become a very popular catchphrase. I think it's more of energy additions. I, I again, I don't think any of us think that oil and gas is going anywhere. I don't think any of us. Uh, at least I don't think coal is going anywhere. And I'm going to cut soon. you off just to put a put a put a thing on there, uh, uh, an asterisk on there. I agree with you. We're going to keep using oil and gas because at the end of the day, John Kerry is not going to stop flying a private plane. Neither is Leonardo DiCaprio. It's just not going to happen. But are we potentially polluting the environment there? Will it cause a catastrophe that's going to make us have to adjust to that? How are we navigating kind yeah. of that potential dilemma? Because I agree with you. At the end of the day, 
you know, I said this when I was on with Colin the other day, you know, if we don't produce it here, Saudi Arabia is going to produce oil. Russia is going to produce oil. Even Venezuela will yeah. produce oil. Eventually. You know? Yeah. <laughs> Eventually. When they get taken over by Russia, they'll. Okay. Yeah. I think the answer to your question is everything we do changes the environment, right? Us getting out of bed in the morning changes something about the rest of the world. And so, yes, of, of course, us burning oil and gas changes the environment. And, and I think the question we have to ask is does it pollute it more? Does it make it better or worse for A, the environment? But be also for humanity, because, you know, as, as humans, I think it's easy for us to fit in socially with each other by blaming ourselves for everything and, and flagellating ourselves, saying, hey, humanity is the root of all evil and, and we've ruined everything else on Earth as, as a result. Um, I think if we break it down and we say, is the world both, you know, environmentally and uh, humanity better or worse off with oil and gas? I think it is way better off. Um, uh, it is, it has advanced us so far. It has made the environment so much cleaner when you compare that to burning wood and, and, you know, cow dung and having horses dying in the street. Life expectancy doubles when you stop burning dung. Yeah. I mean, Mm -hmm. to your point. And look, if we're talking about pollutants in the air, that's much worse than, than, than a a gas fired plant. Right. Um, especially on a per BTU basis. So, you know, I, I I would make the counter argument that, yes, we are polluting, but is that it has to be on a relative spectrum. This isn't an absolute. It's not do we burn oil and gas or do we all just don't use energy at all? It's do we burn oil and gas or do we go build huge wind turbines, take up a ton of land space, uh, dispose of those wind turbines, uh, you know, go mine the, the whatever we need for uh, the batteries to, to store the power for those wind turbines. Um, you know, where do we get the electricity to create the, uh, to create the heat that is needed to create the solar panels? You know, maybe you use solar heat to create China, the heat. China burns coal to build those well, for well, us. Well, sure, and that's yeah. why we get the overwhelming majority of our solar panels from from Western China. And then you have arguably some very cheap labor that um, you know may or may not be humane. And is that good for humanity? Is that good for the environment? I I think on on whole, it's easy to stand up there and say, "Hey, oil and gas is bad." And I feel bad about that, and humanity's terrible, and let us go solve the problems we created. But I think if you zoom out and you compare that on a relative spectrum to what would be better, we are pretty close to being about as as good as as our next best option. And, and I, I would argue that oil and gas is probably better than our next best option. Now that could change, right? I mean, we could have some new, to- totally new technology that that makes energy infinite and and clean, uh, and you know, require no inputs and and whatever, and that would be fantastic. But today, that doesn't exist. Today, we have to go mine cobalt in, in the Congo. We have to go mine lithium all over the world. We have to get a bunch of rare earth minerals from China and and Australia, and. I'm not sure yeah, any of that. can't trust those Australians. I'm just saying. <laughs> I'm just not saying. sure any of that is, is better for... As my Australian tennis coach when I was young used to tell me, we started as a penal colony, just so you know. <laughs> just keep that in mind. So anyway, on I guess on balance, I would make the argument that, that uh, what oil and gas has provided for humanity and has provided for the environment is a huge net positive. Um, and is still better than anything else that is available to us today. 
Yeah, I mean, look, oil and gas was a pretty good thing for the whales out there, right? That was was pretty tough. Um, Look, I I totally agree. And look, if you don't, people don't want to use oil and gas, don't. I mean, it's 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 crazy to me that the oil and gas industry is vilified so much. Uh, This is perhaps a bit of a tangent, but I think the the industry needs to communicate, illustrate, show what we are doing to operate efficiently and with a focus on the environment and the, you know, the lower footprint relative to other forms of energy. Um, and I think the industry has so often been defensive. Um, and you see large uh, you know, super majors you know, saying they're going to divest of their, their hydrocarbon. It's, it's unbelievable to me how, how the actions have, have played out versus this is a great thing for humanity and we're doing a great thing for humanity. And I think leaders of the oil and gas world and companies need to convey that and make people proud. Otherwise, there's going to be an exodus of you know solid talent because people are going to read the headlines and think that they are being evil, when in actuality, they're benefiting humanity quite a bit. One of our core tenets is everything we invest in needs to do some combination of, of make energy more affordable, make it safer for people, and make it better for the environment. And, and I think every, everything we've invested in, everything we will invest in, We'll do at least one, if, if not all three of those. Um, and and that, that's important, right? You can't, and, and I, you know, obviously I wax poetic, Ryan waxes poetic, clearly Mark waxes poetic about the, the merits of We of have a, a three wax stuff. rule yeah. on the podcast. Yeah. You can't say three waxes in a row. Right, yeah, because too much like a Brazilian, I'm just saying. <laughs> <laughs> Speaking Australian. So exactly. I mean. But I think it is important to note that um, we, you know, as, a, as an industry, we need to be responsible, right? And I think on a, on a relative basis, we have been responsible, and we've only gotten more responsible every single year with taking care of the environment around us. Um, we can't go around spilling oil. We can't go around polluting unnecessarily. Uh, and so that is a very important part of making sure, A, that we're being good stewards of the environment, which is the important part. Um, but B, just making sure we're always getting better. Uh, and that's a lot of what we're focused on is making, if we're going to be using all this energy, which we are, and to Ryan's point, we're not going to stop. You, you know, Everyone's free to move to a cave and not burn firewood uh, and never use energy again, and, and they're not going to survive very long, but they're free to do that. So as long as we're using more energy, we need to make it as affordable, as safe, and as environmentally friendly as possible. And that's what we get excited about. And look, I, I think the reason that the industry has, has been under so much heat from that perspective is it's, it's opaque. Uh, I mean, we live it, but most people, their interaction with the oil and gas industry is going to fill up their gas tank. Oh, the stupidest thing we, we've done in the last 20 years when not, was not just say, here's what's in frack fluid. Yeah. No. I, yeah. Well, I, yeah the, well, Jeremy and Ryan are you know spot on in terms of both the realities the world's going to keep using oil and gas. It's on balance, and balances matter. There's no, you know, the old expression, which is overused but absolutely correct, is, there's no free lunch. You know, in, in nature, in physics, in, in economic systems, that you just simply always have uh, consequences to actions. And humans exist and they impact the environment. What you want to do is minimize that. And then you're comparing apples to apples or apples to oranges, whatever you want, you're making the comparison. So if you don't use oil and use something else, it has a consequence too. You have to dig something up, you have to do something, you have to build something. So when you look at these things on balance, you find out, and you know, Jeremy nailed it, it'd be hard to come up with a cleaner, more economic, and a humane way to supply so much energy to so many people than what has happened the last century. 
But the question you're, you're asking, which is the, the Greta question under, under infusing all this, is not about pollution per se, as, you, as we all know. It's the magic carbon dioxide question once that got declared by Congress as a, quote, pollutant. Congress can do anything it wants. Congress can declare that gravity doesn't exist. They're allowed. It's, you know, they can do anything they want. But gravity will still exist, but they can say it doesn't. And they can pass a law against gravity. Fair enough. They, pat, they declared carbon dioxide as a pollutant. Turns out carbon dioxide is a nutrient. It's what plants require to live, right? This is, I'm just stating a, a piece of biology that uh, you probably should have learned in third or fourth grade. So, we exhale it every day. Yeah, yeah. Exactly. It's plants, in us. plants like it. So they, in fact, plants don't exist. Uh, they don't ex- wouldn't exist on Earth. There would be no life on Earth but for carbon dioxide because it is the fuel of plants, plant life. And plant life is the beginning of the food chain for humanity. I mean, that's obvious full stop. So the question that scientists have, I'll answer the science question, are we on the verge of an apocalypse? The answer is no. So that's not exactly a nuanced answer. The world is not on the verge of an apocalypse from carbon dioxide emitted from burning oil and gas. That does not mean that there isn't some effect from humans adding some of the carbon dioxide to the atmosphere that nature adds a lot of as well. And I would commend to those who haven't read it, uh, Stephen Coonan's new book called Unsettled. I did a, a video podcast with, with uh, Stephen about a week or two ago. His book was officially rolling. And, uh, and I reviewed his book in the Wall Street Journal, as, as you probably saw. Uh, it's, it is, uh, and he is to be, so for those who don't know who he is, he's, he was the Deputy Secretary, Department of Energy for Research under Obama. Uh, he was the uh, Chancellor at Caltech. He's a physicist of some note. Uh, so, you know, and he's a guy, uh, of, let's say, of consequence. He wrote a, an excellent book, which is essentially a lecture, explaining the science of climate change for those who want to understand it. And it, it's a tour de force. And he uh, states up front, yeah, humans affect the climate. Humans affect everything. The question is how much, what's the evidence, what's the velocity of the change, what can we do different? And he, he answers all those questions. But if you were going to distill it to the answer to the question, which he would answer exactly as I did. And he's a very nuanced guy, more, more nuanced than I am. But if you forced him to say, are we on the verge of an apocalypse for the planet Earth because of the use of oil and gas and coal? The answer is no. That, but that's different than the question of, is, are there some effects? And then what could you do different than we're doing today? You could do very little different than we're doing today, in fact. And this transition word, I, I'm happy to take, uh, take the heat for saying there isn't one. There's no evidence of a transition, and there's no evidence of transition happening anytime soon if you look at the data and the quantity of energy used by society. In fact, we were talking earlier before we came to the magical you know, Chuck studio about how coal use is up in the Q1 this year. Up, not down. Global coal use, up. What happened? Well, gas got more expensive, um, and coal got cheaper, and the world needs electricity, and a lot of people in the world are burning more coal, including in some European countries, because they want to keep the lights on. I mean, those are the choices that are made. And they've already built a lot of wind turbines, if ever, and nobody has noticed. But to keep the lights on, they have to also build conventional power plants, mostly, mostly gas fire, but they're building a lot of coal plants. Too. They built a lot of coal plants in Germany because they shut their nukes down, which is a whole separate subject. It was kind of goofy and a little silly, the Germans, to say the least, but they did it. And so they had to build coal plants. By the way, you uh, you got canceled for your Kunin review. I did. I, I you know, I I have never had the pleasure 
or the respect have been canceled. So Facebook now briefly... You, now you know you've made it. I made it. Facebook briefly canceled, blocked access to the Wall Street Journal page where I reviewed his book. This is a review of a book. It's not my opinion. <laughs> yeah, I mean, in a sense, it's my opinion. But to be fair, you know, you, you, it's impossible not to layer your opinion a little bit in a book review. But it's his book. And then they, they backed off that and they posted that, uh, that it was unscientific and linked it to a rebuttal, a 4,500-word rebuttal to my 900-word book review by a group of scientists who said... Uh, if you read their rebuttal, what you found out was they didn't say that Kunin was wrong, or maybe it was wrong, but there's some nuances we have to discuss. No kidding. <laughs> uh, the point of the title of the book, Unsettled, was proven by the mere fact of that. Yeah, no kidding. There's a lot to talk about here in the science, and that's why Kunin wrote his book. So, you know, I have my opinions about the science. I followed it for 20, 25 years. Who cares what my opinion is about the science on this? What people can actually read the information, and Kunin uses the same primary sources of information that all the other scientists in the global climate science community use, the IPCC and their research documents. So he doesn't use the PR releases, he uses the primary, and he will say, uh, as my friend Dick Lindzen has said many times in public space, who happens to be a real climate scientist from MIT, those who are attacking the climate scientists as you know, promulgating a hoax should stop saying that the climate scientists aren't doing that. The climate activists are. The climate scientists are actually being pretty darn good about their science and pretty honest about it, but no one's reading it. Interesting. Because, you know, that really brings up the point. Cause, I mean, at the, at the end of the day, I mean, three things can happen here, right? Number one, Greta could be right, and <laughs> a hole in the ozone layer could pop up and what is it i think we're eight years out from that and we could get laser zapped by the sun we could start with number one is never going to happen but go ahead yeah but, but i mean theoretically <laughs> no that, not even but, theoretically yeah <laughs> the earth could stop rotating theoretically no it's not going to happen yeah the sun could blow up tomorrow no, not going to happen i'm sorry but anyway go ahead so what something, if, what if something really bad could happen Con yeah congress could ban the rotation of the earth that could happen <laughs> that could happen they could ban it but the earth would probably probably keep might, might still spin well, it I mean, depends, the, you know, they might pass a double revolution, you know, maybe another resolution, maybe. Exactly. Maybe the second time they might be. We'll ask really yeah. nicely. Please stop spinning yeah. Earth. But so number one, I mean, something bad could happen. In a weird sort of way, that might actually be a relief. Because you know what the United States does really well? We don't, I don't think we do day-to-day -day that great. But man, when there's a catastrophe, yeah, when there's a big problem, we kick ass at that. <laughs> I mean, you bring on the Nazis, we take them down, you know? And so, so if you bring on $200, $200 oil, we'll, we'll take it off. Yeah, we'll, 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 figure, we'll figure that out if the climate starts zapping us. Because at the end of the day, you're right. I mean, God provided at time zero, there is a solution to too much carbon in the air. It's called a tree, you know? Photosynthesis happens. Uh, number two, the other thing can happen as we're, as you say, in fantasy land. Let's stay in fantasy land. Theoretically, the United States, China, and India could sit down, map out a strategy of actually reducing the use of hydrocarbons. Hug and get along. Strategy, Hug and get along. That's Leonardo DiCaprio uh, strategy. Yeah. Leonardo DiCaprio wants everybody to get along and agree to how to run the world. I think that's actually less likely than, than the Earth stopping rotating. <laughs> I think so. we got the, uh, Just saying. I yeah. Mean, no, I, that's like a, that's said, a law of human nature, which is even even stronger than the laws of physics. I just want you to know that. The, uh, 
the the one reason I think it's slightly more likely to happen is I do think we could be taken advantage of by the Chinese. We could lose that we, argument. Could be. Yes, exactly. Uh, but then the the, the you know the uh, the the third thing that happens is some shade of gray of slightly warmer temperatures, slightly more CO two in the air and the like. That it's not linear. It, mm -hmm. Just because we've gone from 225 parts per million to 425, and we've seen a degree to a de degree Three, and a half. 320 to 420. 320 just, to 420? Just, just, I was yeah. off 100? Just 100. This is details, 50% yeah, is what you know. Among friends, what does it matter? I was a finance guy. We rounded. Two, 200 you were PPM. mocking Jeremy early for being <laughs> exactly. a banker. That was my background. We rounded. <laughs> 200 PPM, for the record, is what's called plant starvation. All the plants on Earth would die. Well, that'd be a bad thing. That'd be a bad thing. That'd be a bad just, thing. Just saying. So, so I mean, <laughs> you know, and I think all of our forecasts that are sitting there saying this catastrophe happens is based on linear stuff. I mean, if you have a glass and you pour some red dye in, first drop's pretty dramatic. Second one's not so much. Third one's not so much. And so, mm -hmm. you know, let's assume the, the third thing happens. Yes, we're changing the environment to some degree, not causing a catastrophe. but at the And, and on balance, we're better off. How do we get that message out? Because we have, I'll just say this, and I get eviscerated on Twitter for saying this, but I'm sorry, but we have been our own worst enemies. I mean, oh, back in the 70s, yeah. we printed up bumper stickers yeah. that said, freeze a Yankee, right? And and I, hey, I wait think- Wait a minute, I'm from Canada. It's <laughs> north of Yankee land. We, didn't, we were already freezing. So oh, we wanted any. you to freeze too down here in Texas. <laughs> No, I think I think what what a subtlety that's missed on folks, particularly folks in the energy business, is Elon Musk. Say what you want, he kind of gets celebrated as a hero because when he's doing well, the economy does well, right? Mm -hmm. And historically, energy ran countercyclical. When we were doing great, it was actually a tax on the economy, higher fuel prices, and the economy didn't do as well, and so. We would be rich here in Texas and Oklahoma and the rest of the nation would be suffering. And quite frankly, we were just dickheads about it. I mean, though, I, I like <laughs> that to, a technical term. That is a very technical term. I Finance like to, term. Right? I like to say the TV show Dallas was a documentary. It was not. <laughs> and so we were our own worst enemy doing that. To your point earlier, Ryan, about being just opaque. I mean, we didn't even tell people for years what was in frac fluid and there was nothing bad in it and, and the like. And so... I want to, and, and this recently happened on Twitter a couple of weeks ago where there was a big, huge fight on who's doing what and, you know, and all this. And I actually sat there and looked through the whole fight. And what I found was everybody was stating an opinion, yet no one showed any evidence. Right. No one said, right. okay, here's the evidence that this is actually happening. And so I'm wondering, how do we change the narrative? How do we get better about this? Because I think what we're doing today is all just self-confirming self bias. Mm -hmm. you know. And so if we hear somebody say something we like, that's great. And they're an effective advocate for our industry. But we have absolutely no clue if that really caused somebody in the middle to come to our side or lessen the pain we're going to feel from somebody way on the other side. Any thoughts on that? I think it's a great question. Yeah. Um, I, I I do think it's kind of interesting to think about. You know, uh, today oil and gas is you know slowed down on 
developing new wells and so forth because capital markets have been constrained and, and all that. Um, and that is not exactly celebrated in, in environmental circles. But I, I guarantee you what's going to happen if Goldman's right and we have $100 oil next year, there are going to be the same people that are today saying oil and gas needs to go away in Congress or wherever are going to be pounding the table yelling at oil and gas companies for not drilling enough and for driving up the price because they consciously limited the supply by not drilling enough wells over the last couple of years or whatever. So it, you're kind of in a like lose-lose situation. Um, I think what oil and gas has going for it is it's an incredible product. The energy density of it is is incredibly high. We have an almost you know borderline infinite supply of it. Um, and it always replenishes over time, albeit slowly. Uh, it, it is actually renewable, uh, and it is solar pa- power, right? Um, it's just an incredible form of, of energy storage, and, and maybe the best form of energy storage we found besides, like, radioactive material. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think part of the reason we haven't defended ourselves is because all the attempted defense has been shouted down um, because it is an opaque industry and, and because you— you haven't gained much by trying to defend yourself. Um, and anyone who listens to you is already in the echo chamber that, that you mentioned. And so the industry has just turned to, hey, look, we have the best product that's ever been created. And so we're going to keep selling it one way or another because the world needs it. And so why do we need to go spend money? And why do we, you know, I as a CEO of a public company need to get shouted down in, in half the publications in the country by putting my neck on the line? Um, which, look, is, is unfortunate because that leads to not many people putting their necks on the line. Um, but I think people react rationally, so I'm not sure there is a good way. I wish more people would do like what Chris Wright does and say, hey, my ESG report is, is real, and it is pointing out that my product really does help humanity and help the environment. Um, but I think you'd have a really hard time convincing other Public company CEOs, for example, to do that. And people should go to the Liberty. For those who don't know, they, yeah. I think probably everybody in your audience knows, knows who Chris Wright is, but they can use a magic Google machine to find the video he did. I think it's on LinkedIn too, right? It's, it's uh, pretty I'm sure. I'm not sure, but the ESG short, report is, is just it, go, go to YouTube as you know, Chris Wright, Liberty, ESG video. Uh, it's a terrific defense, to your point, of both operating a business in, a, in an environmentally in a socially uh, responsible way, and a defense of the industry. But, uh, but Jeremy, Jeremy's right, and you're right that it's it's a tough business to be in. It's been a, it's not fun to be out there defending it. So you're right. You have to either decide you're going to talk to people who don't like what you're saying, and that's not fun, even if you do it diplomatically, because they, a lot of times you, you have ad hominem attacks. They're attacking you personally, not the facts you're presenting but attacking you personally. It's not fun. Uh, and most people don't want to do it. And in other cases, uh, they've made it a, a, a fiduciary decision to stay out of the fight, just to go along because it's easier because eventually the world will have to return to quote normal. Well, my advice to them is sure, eventually, but your business might be bankrupt and the Russians and the Saudis where you started will sell the oil, but you won't be because if you don't participate in the debate, uh, governments can destroy businesses. They've done it before. Governments can do. Governments can do what happened in the 1920s in Russia. Governments can Sovietize an economy. They can do that. It can be done, and that destroys all the businesses. They all become 
statist businesses. You know, I don't think that's going to happen to America, but that's the kind of path you go down if you don't defend. You know, yeah. Oh, go ahead, Ryan. No, I, I just had a couple other points. I mean, your point as it relates to when oil and gas is doing well, it's a tax on the economy and, and you know, vice versa. Um, it would be an even bigger tax if we didn't have domestic production. <laughs> Amen. Uh, and, I, and I think a lot of people lose sight of that. I mean, it'd be fascinating. This would never happen. But what if you just stopped oil and gas for a day? And let that ripple happen, you know, and go through the overall system. It'd be mayhem, <laughs> which is kind of crazy to think about. So then, how do you how do you fix it? I really think industry leaders need to stop being so defensive. They need to own it. They need to say we're going to keep producing hydrocarbons because we think it's the right thing to do, and it is a good thing to do. And you know, how do you further you know that message? I think you you try to humanize it. Uh, and you know, make it less opaque. Put faces behind it. Make yeah. you know, have right. people that are proud behind it. And I think that, that that would go a long way. They should do what they're accused of doing. They're accused of mounting political and public relations campaigns to defend themselves. The critics of the oil and gas industry say all the time that big oil. Of course, there aren't many big oil, but big oil has powerful public relations and political campaigns. Really. Show me them. I mean, where are they? But since they're being accused of it, I think they should do it. They should just get out and, and, and advocate, lobby, and they aren't. I can tell you from firsthand evidence in Washington, where I, where I live, that there, there are crickets when it comes to a— used to be if you, if you proposed a piece of legislation that was anti-oil, essentially, or anti-energy, the lobbyists would come out of the woodwork in the oil and gas industry. Crickets now. Yeah, the defense doesn't, there's just, just you, you go, just, you, you just let them pass it. No, it's almost, and I, I'm not exaggerating when I say crickets. There's a few people who lobby and show up, but not many. Yeah, you know, my favorite uh, professor, teacher I ever had my whole life was Doc C, Gilbert Cuthbertson. He taught political science at Rice, and Doc's, political theory was myth power value. You use myth to convert values to power. The quick and easy example is George Washington and cutting down the cherry tree. Dad, I cannot tell a lie, right? That was honesty and he wins the presidency and all that. That was a totally made up story. Political consultant made that up. I mean, it wasn't true, but you know, that that's kind of this framework. You know, other examples are, you know, victors always get to write history, etc. You know, the power of myth and one of the things Doc used to always say is you never attack, you know, from a political side, you never attack if you're a conservative from the right because you'll just get shouted down. Mm -hmm. You always attack from the left. And if you bring Sun Tzu into it, Sun Tzu always says, you know, you attack from the back because back they're not guarding the back flank. I haven't been able to formulate the def in my mind because I haven't really spent enough time on it. But how do we attack from the left all of the charges against the uh, the energy business? Because at the end of the day, I think one of the things we have to do is we have to be hip. We have to be funny. We have to have some sort <laughs> well, of— In this room, that you just lost all— Oh, yeah. Well, none of us. I didn't not say— Not hip and not funny. I didn't say any of us could do this. Losers but... and boring. Yeah, the, Come on. I, yeah, exactly. I didn't <laughs> I didn't think any of us were going to be capable of doing it. But, you know, it's interesting because I, I really think who we lost 
um, and, and what kind of gave the, the, the side to this, this fight is we just lost young people. They fell prey to the, you're destroying the planet and the like. And so, well, Jer- I, Jeremy and Ryan, they, they both articulated, uh, cause I, I stayed off that territory. I'm all, I'm on it a lot too. The, the, the territory where they be, uh, made their arguments from were the moral uh, cases for the use of oil and gas. It's the, the moral, moral cases for cheap, abundant reliable energy but making that re, making that substantive you know with facts but you start from the from the the angle where you want to have a clearer cleaner environment you want to protect people you want to help people so the social arguments which aren't part of the left but the left makes their arguments beginning from a social uh, you know personal perspective and too often, people in industry start from a technical perspective. They'll argue with what the facts you got wrong are. Okay, you got to do that. I do it all the time. But that's then you're stuck. You're not, to your point, you're not making the argument beginning from where they are, which is a humanist perspective, which is what, what uh, Jeremy was talking about. I, I think that side of the argument is almost more fear. And I saw this quote recently that fear is the currency of control. And, and the fear of climate change, the fear of, getting zapped by the sun yeah. because of the oil and gas industry. It, it's scary. It grabs headlines. Like, I'm not saying the oil and gas industry should do this, but do you tack it with fear? Like, you, like what would happen well, if, you, if it didn't exist? Well, you just, you just nailed it. Uh, I with the, Day without oil. Just Let's just do, you know, you saw the API, what, the one good advertisement API did, I'll give them credit for this, that you, you've seen this, this ad they did where they show things starting to disappear around the house that are made with petrochemicals or use oil. And it, it's a really clever ad. They just start disappearing. And, and it, they just sequentially over 30 seconds, everything around the house that's made from or uses oil disappears. It's powerful. You know, very, very Atlas shrugged. Yeah, very yes. much. So, uh, but uh, the fear of what would happen to, the, to us with a day or a week or a year without oil, just let's just do it. Let's just turn a switch and declare you can't use oil for one week or one month and run a scenario. And can you replace, and you've got people say, well, I'll, I'll build more Teslas. Okay, but remember I said no oil. So, you know, the trucks that dig the stuff that make the, the mines for- You can't really plug in in the middle of nowhere. Hey, yeah. we'll run this miner off right. uh, Well, the plugs are made out of petrochemical products. The batteries made out of <laughs> petrochemical products. The mines are mined with oil and it's shipped with oil, so. I think the crux of the argument for any like really any left-right argument is the right's going to argue that the individual is very important and the left is going to argue that the collective is very important. And the ultimate collective is like the earth, right, and all of its creatures and all of its life and and so forth, which is why, you know, the Communist Party in, in every country really relies on environmentalism, even though they're huge environmental, you know, I guess... Enemies. The Soviets' track record but, is worse than ours. Oh, way worse. Yeah. But but if you look at their propaganda, it's very much on how great the environment is and how humans are destroying it and, and we need to save it. And so turn over control to the state to help us do that and, and so forth because it's a great motivator. Um, and, you know, so despite how many times we say, uh, look, the, the you know, the, the kid in XYZ country that is burning – wood in their hut and inhaling all the particulates come out of that and, and decreasing their their lifespan to your point chuck 
it just doesn't hit home as much to the people you're debating against as the collective. Um, and, and that collective argument always wins for, for that viewpoint. So I, I don't know. I mean, I, I, I think we got to come up with how – I think we have to re, reorient our messages less away from the individual and how we're helping an individual person and, and so forth to – how we are helping the collective and how we are helping the environment. And, to and all to Doc's that. point, uh, yeah. attack from the left, adopt yeah. their language and stuff. Yeah. And I don't have a good answer. I asked the question, and I'm going to spend a lot of time over the next six months talking to a lot of s- smart people asking this question because we clearly need to do a better job of it. The one last question I'll kind of ask on this point is, what, what kind of, how do we measure our effectiveness in actually, in actually changing the narrative out there. I mean, there are opinion polls, et cetera, but any thoughts you have there, Mark? Because you do this every day. Yeah. So I, I follow the polls because it's the only, the only, we only have two measurement tools. One is the, uh, the ballot box elections, because based on who gets elected and what, what Congress decides to do, whether it's a state government or federal, particularly at the federal level. And that, that's one measurement. It's a real measurement. I mean, it's ultimately the one that will matter because that will where laws will be passed to make it harder or easier to do things. And that's a amorphous slow motion measurement because these effects don't happen overnight. The other are the polls. The problem with polls, as everybody knows, is that they're eat, you have to be very careful how you ask questions because polls can be used to get the answers that you want. So if you're really trying to measure something, one can take polls that will, I mean, advertisers do this, not just uh, politicians. The, po- the polls politicians take privately that they don't publish are designed to get the answer to the question. Did I move the audience? Did I get people on my side? Right. That's what they care about. Those are not the polls you read in the newspapers or here on the news. Those polls are taken to influence people, not to get the answer to it if you oh, move yeah, somebody. Clearly. Right? That, I mean, that's obvious, but it's important. Distinction. So the polls that Gallup take, Gallup takes tracking polls. They ask questions like, and they've been doing this for 25 years, it, should the United States develop more oil and gas or not? Yes or no. Should, should the United States spend more money on alternative energy? Yes or no. Are you worried about the environment? Yes or no. There's a set of tracking polls they've been doing since we've been having this exact kind of general argument since 1973, roughly, when the oil embargo. That was sort of the modern, modern age of in energy angst. And, you know, those are useful. They tell you something. Um, they don't tell something very encouraging right now, <laughs> frankly. <laughs> but that's probably, the, that's probably the only answer. There's no, except in your microcosm, right? Did you get, if you have a specific campaign, you're fighting, you're a company in a state like Colorado, did you get shut down? Did you get did a we law? get our permit? Did yeah. you get a permit? Did the yeah. law pass that says you can't get permits? I mean, we, we had to, to, to date where we are now, we had, you know, this president, issue an executive order to make it just to ban permits for oil and gas drilling on federal land. Okay. We heard today a federal judge in Louisiana said, no can do. You're going to have to litigate this further up, but there's an injunction against that. All right. Well, you'll, that's a legal one, but, and that has, that was done for political reasons, obviously. Um, you could be cynical about the politics, but the politics actually measure what you're asking. They measure what the people who did it think people are going to react to, not just, you know, they're trying to move opinion and get reaction. But I I would say, here's the measure. When a lot more people like Chris Wright start talking and join, that would be the first measure that 
I think we're beginning to make headway because the, the discussion, the debate, whatever we want to call it, has to be engaged by the practitioners of the industry. And they're, they're pretty silent by and large. And I'll throw one thing out that I learned. So I've been thinking about this for the last couple of weeks. One thing I learned in terms of talking to my kiddos. Um, <laughs> Good luck with that. Yeah, no, exactly. <laughs> but it's interesting. I think the, uh, the issue with younger folks is not just we're destroying the planet. It is oil companies behave poorly. Yeah, sure. And I think to that end, one of the things we need to come up with a strategy for is, okay, oil and gas companies, you know, how are we going to handle problems of the past? Are we going to sweep them under the rug? Or are we going to say, hey, we're sorry we did this. Here's how we're getting better. And I have a tendency to believe the latter is a better strategy, kind of going back to Johnson and Johnson. Remember when Tylenol Mm-hmm. Um, people were poisoning bottles of Tylenol. And it was very small, very isolated. One person, uh, Johnson Johnson, took all of Tylenol off the shelves. Said we didn't, we don't know what's going on. We want to protect you guys. We're going to go figure it out. Turns out this person was tampering with the sure. the bottles. They came out and said, "We're you know we fixed it. You can't tamper with it anymore. We're really sorry." We make bottles nobody can open. <laughs> that nobody can open exactly. <laughs> to this day, I've got to give them to it's my safe. kid. <laughs> yeah, I got to give them to my kid. Here, please. But but at the end of the day, you that hurt was yourself uh, so much opening it that you need some Tylenol. <laughs> <laughs> Buy more. There you go. That, I didn't it's see the genius for that. But no, at the, at the end of the day, that actually went counter to what the advice was. The advice was, "Don't shut down sales. You're going to lose it." But they clearly. May have lost the battle, but they won the war because well, it's about trust. Right? Yeah, yeah, you built trust exactly. With your customer base, and right now the customers of oil and gas do not trust it. Yeah, no, I think that's exactly right. And they, I don't, they don't, I don't know equi- what to do with well, it, but a, it's a fact. I think that's real. Yeah, the trust part, which you, which is what Brian nailed, the feature of what what the Johnson and Johnson did, which was they engendered trust, but you don't have an equivalent action in the sense with oil and gas business because you. What are you supposed to do? You're supposed to do exactly what the uh, apocalyptics want you to do. Go out of business. They don't, I mean, so the debate that's in play now is that you shouldn't exist right, as a business. And so we're going to figure out a way that you don't exist. And if that's a debate you're having, you don't have a lot. It's not a lot of middle ground. But if you're looking at the, 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 the proportion of a, the public that actually isn't in that camp, that they, they believe a story – Stories matter, not just myth, but stories. Right. They believe a story, and um, the story isn't true, but they believe it. And the story is we don't need oil and gas. This is the story that's been peddled successfully now for a decade. We don't need it. This other magic energy tech right. stuff, cheaper, better, faster, just like, you know, and you've seen this a thousand times. The guy who's peddling the story, the gal waves a smartphone and says, look, look how fast this came. Nobody thought this could be done. And so energy tech is going to do the same to oil and gas. Okay, um, if that's true, you don't have to ban me. I'll, I mean, I'll, I'll, in the market forces, I'll just go out of business. You'll stop buying my stuff. But we're not taking the argument on. And that, that's not a trust argument. That's just a factual, self-promotional argument you have to make. I don't know. The trust one is maybe 
back, we'll go back to Chris Wright. Maybe you have to stand up and explain what ESG really means and why you can trust me as an operator. Let me tell you what I'm doing in my business. Yeah. And so people understand your business, because they don't. That's hard to do, because nobody's paying attention. We're gonna take an advertisement out? I mean, I, what, what's the mechanism? You know, you, if you're an oil company, anybody gonna listen to an Exxon podcast? I don't think so. Exxon doesn't have a TikTok video going around. But uh, yeah. no, you're, you're basically saying to Jeremy's point, we've got to say, yes, there's a big benefit to us so that people understand that. And then to Ryan's point, yeah, sins of the past we've done, but we are self-policing and, and, and we're cleaning it up. So um, this, this, has been, this has been really interesting talking about this. One last thing, because I know you guys need to go. I think you've got a dinner tonight. Course, one of the one of course we have dinner tonight yeah <laughs> Pro- probably i'm hoping it's liquid refreshment besides the dinner so i've heard that's yeah. <laughs> i'm in texas though. what are you going to talk what are you going to talk him into tonight after the second glass of wine so uh wine yeah, mark drinks vodka yeah. come on <laughs> this is true this is tito's territory there we go fair. wine what are you french yeah, fair <laughs> wow jeez wow i like france wow and i used to speak french so i don't want to Insult my French. I'm friends. actually a big heavy cab <laughs> guy from Napa. I, so, I could tell. Yeah, you know, so I could I, just tell. Yeah. But uh, so one of the things I've been doing on the podcast uh, basically all of this year is asking people for a song list. And it's been interesting because when I first started the podcast, I ripped off old Craig Kilborn routine about five questions, and two or three of them would be serious. Two or three of them would be funny, haha. It kind of worked, but it didn't really tell anything about the guest. Um, and so I just kind of switched. Hey, tell me about a song list. And you can take this any direction you want to go. I mean, Energy Credit One, Jeff Davies came on, and Jeff talked about the song that got him through his parents' divorce, which was pretty serious. Chad Spencer took it a totally different direction and said, Man, every morning you need to get up and you need to listen to Thunderstruck by ACDC because that motivates you and all that. So I'm going to go around. Maybe the way we do the song list, since there are three of you, is everybody has to throw out a song. Tell me why you threw it out, what it meant to you, what direction you're taking that. Jeremy, you've had to go first on all this, so I'll make Ryan go first. Party in the USA. Uh, (laughs) didn't see that one coming uh, i'm joking um Uh, how quickly can i resign from the advisory board (laughs) big miley fan uh no uh so my my song would be so it's it's by a band called the dawes Uh, have you heard of them d-a-w-e-s fantastic band um i this is side note this is a bit embarrassing but spotify at the end of the year tells you you know what you listen to throughout the year and uh, uh, you know what percentage you were of that artist. I was the point zero zero one percent of the listeners for Dawes, so I'm I'm sure I'm like right behind the <laughs> grandparents of the band members. But <laughs> anyways, it's a song called "Things Happen," uh, and the main line is "Things happen. That's all they ever do." And I think it's just great. I mean, that's that's life. Like things happen. Like that's it. You got to roll with it. I think it you know helped me as we were starting our business and you know as the ups and downs it's like you know normal is things happening and it's that way with anybody so anybody that's you know woe is me it's like I bet you on the other side it could be woe is me it's just a matter of perspective and what do they sound like what's what if you had to categorize Dawes as a genre I would say rock maybe like a touch folky okay yeah. Americana a little yeah, bit yeah. maybe 
Gotcha. I have one Miley Cyrus story. I'm in a hotel in Tulsa. Miley has just played the uh, the venue there in, in Tulsa. I think it's uh, oh uh, the Oklahoma Bank of Oklahoma Center or whatever. She played that. She's staying at the hotel I'm at. Um, I'm in the bar. She walks into the bar. Yes, I am the annoying person that goes up to every celebrity and gets the picture. I take three steps that direction. I hear a booming voice in the back that says, Sir, if you stop right there, you and I are going to get along okay tonight. And I turn around, and there's the largest man I've ever seen. So needless to say, I kind of got to wave at Miley and didn't get to meet her. So, uh, Jeremy, all right, you're up. What's your song? Uh, man, um, to be honest, I just I don't I don't care that much about. Like, I, <laughs> I listen to music. I don't listen to the lyrics at all. Like I, I'll sing them, but I don't think about like what it all means. I he's, just like he he dances to it though. Uh, I mean, there we go. I think about how it makes me feel, which is probably why I really like EDM because it like it makes me feel good without having to put any significance on the lyrics. Do you have um, a favorite EDM artist? Uh, I I would probably say that Avicii is one of my favorites. Oh, nice. Um, so I guess I would say "Wake Me Up." I realize it's probably the most, one of the most famous songs of all time and, and not terribly original, but. Uh, I love the way it makes me feel. So uh, I'll go with that. You know, that and Jewel's entire. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Okay. Apparently, Jewel needs to look into uh, Miley's bodyguard when. But, yeah, yeah, when I'm. <laughs> when I'm the, uh, so I just gave this speech in Oklahoma, and it's actually the podcast I dropped today was my speech, and uh, I I told that joke that Twitter said because when I got fired. Um, people were obviously making fun of me for about 72 hours and there were a lot of Jewel jokes in there. And Jewel, <laughs> unbeknownst to me, jumps on Twitter and says, all right, everybody, it's funny that we've been making fun of Chuck. Only I get to make fun of Chuck. Y'all stop. <laughs> and somebody tweeted back to that and said, holy cow, there are two types of people in energy finance Twitter. Those that are like, Jewel acknowledged us. And then they're Jewel stalkers. <laughs> and the Venn diagram is Chuck uh, Yates. <laughs> All right, Mark, All right. you've you've danced around long enough. What's your uh, what's your song, and why is it on the list? Fire all your guns at once. I've always you, said that Mark was born to be wild. So, <laughs> so you, you know, I like that song. I like Steppenwolf. So I date myself because this is, you know, when this movie came out, right? Because it was the lead song for Easy Rider. And uh, at, that, at that time in, the, uh, in, the, in, the, in prehistory, I uh, rode motorcycles. I raced Grand Prix. I was a mechanic. Actually, um, you know, anyway. So this... Um, this particular song, because of the movie, it was an iconic movie at the time. It, you know how things imprint you like a duckling at birth. When, you, right. when you're young, there's certain songs that sort of make you remember things. Few things, few songs evoke as many memories as that song does for me. It's actually, uh, you know, Bored Be Wild is pretty good. I'm a wild guy, you know. Sure. Um, I'm with a couple of wild and crazy guys in our, our fund here. No, I, I think that, uh, I loved Steppenwolf as a, as a band, but I liked a lot of the bands then. I liked all the uh, 60s bands, and I liked The Doors, and I liked uh, Chicago. I loved uh, Moody Blues. I liked, uh, you know, I was 
I listen to them now. I'm like Jeremy, but even though I was a physics major, I actually listened to music and uh, can't play an instrument with a damn. All my kids can, but uh, I like music. Yeah, I suffer from the same thing. You know, can't play an instrument, no musical talent. Little, but I recognize it. Yeah, if my kids didn't look exactly like me, it'd be a little suspicious on where they got the musical <laughs> yeah, talent. Right, you but, gotta uh, wonder. Skips a it's a, yeah, it's hard. Oh, that's for, a skips. That's it. That's, yeah, that's a generation. Skips a generation. There yeah, you. we're not we're not seeing a lot of musical talent out of Mimi and Grandpa either. So, <laughs> <laughs> well, you guys were really cool to come in. Appreciate you coming to the Audio Realm Studios in Richmond, Texas. As a, uh, I think Ethan Bellamy texted out or tweeted out the other day quickly becoming the po podcast headquarters of the world. So. Yeah, we're going to stop by and get a bail bond on the way out. We're going to be in good shape. Thank you. Perfect. Good to be here. <laughs> Thanks, Chuck. Appreciate it. Yeah, Thanks for having us, Chuck. Thanks. Appreciate it. It's great. I, I, I.